It's wonderful to see you. And I really trust that God will continue to speak to you this morning through His Word. I want to welcome you again if you're visiting. It's a delight to have you. If you haven't been uh, around for a while, I just want to let you know what we are doing. We've been doing a series on heaven, looking at uh, what the Bible teaches about heaven. Uh, and the, I've said before that um, that's really a twofold purpose for me in doing this. One, that we would have a good idea theologically of what God says we can expect, but also that it would help us to live well now. And I'd, I'm going to look a little bit more at um, what that means this morning, how we can live well now in terms of, of knowing something of the promises that God has for us. And so on this journey so far, I've, I think I've preached four times now uh, around the subject. Uh, we've, we started by looking at various people's views of heaven. If you remember, I looked at Bonhoeffer, Derek Bonhoeffer, famous Christian writer and theologian. Ernest Hemingway had a really interesting take on what heaven might be like. Mark Twain, remember, we looked at Huckleberry Finn. And um, Mark Twain speaking through the character of Finn, uh, just saying what he thought heaven would be like. And uh, we also discovered that heaven is God's promise to us, and that Jesus quite clearly spoke a lot about heaven, and uh, he also spoke a lot about hell, which was a subject for another day. But we need to do both together, isn't it? We need, we need to understand what the Bible says about heaven and about hell. And then Paul quite clearly speaks much about heaven and the promise that lies ahead of us and what is awaiting us. And I, I said to you that this eternal promise of heaven is rooted in the promise that God gave to our old friend Abraham. Remember? Genesis 15, Abraham looks up and God speaks to him and he sees these myriad stars and God says, so numerous as the stars are in the sky, so will your offspring be. And he makes a promise to him that through him, through his line, all of the world will be blessed. And uh, so the heaven promise that we have really is rooted in that promise that was made to Abraham. And we looked at that. And then thirdly, I said that the language of the Bible speaks about heaven in two ways. It speaks about heaven with a small h and heaven with a big h. And I try to put it simply and say simply that heaven with a small h is uh, an intermediate place. It's a kind of... It's a, I try to describe it as the best resort you've ever been to while you're still awaiting something better that is coming. And I said also that um, uh, people um, handle grief in different ways. And when the Bible says it speaks of this intermediate place, it means that that's when we die. We go into the presence of, of Jesus. That's, this is this kind of holding place. And I said last time that people try and handle grief in different ways. People sometimes go to mediums and expense, try and experience occult things to get in contact with people that have left this earth. And they think if they do that, that somehow proves that there's life after death. And there's this kind of thing that you can have. Well, the, the Bible quite clearly speaks against that in a, and says that's not something that we should be involved in. But secondly, that's not what the Bible means when it speaks about resurrection. And I try to make that clear. Uh, that's part of the message I did last week. And if you'd have a, like to have a listen again, please do so. And then I spoke about heaven with a big H. Heaven with a big H is the end of all time where there will be a day of judgment where people, we will, as Christians, will not be judged in terms of our salvation, but we will be judged, the Bible says, in terms of our works for our reward. 
So we don't experience condemnation. We experience the reward that God has for us. And that's what the Bible says. And it says at the end, when the dead in Christ are raised into a glorified body, the new heaven and the new earth will come down and we will live uh, in the new Jerusalem with God forever. That's heaven with a big H. That's, that's the end, the final thing that comes. And this is what the Bible teaches. And so I've tried to look at some of these things to give you an idea of uh, how we can live better now. And we know also what God has for us. Uh, the Bible's full of encouragements, and uh, the New Testament in particular is full of encouragements. And one of the encouragements that the Bible does give us in terms of this thing of heaven, it says, Paul writes quite clearly, he says, set your heart, set your mind on things above, not on things below. It's, a, it's actually a command, actually, from Paul. He's saying, I want you to think about, I want you to set your heart and your mind on heaven, what is still to come. And the, 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 the deduction from that is that it affects how we live if we are setting our minds on heaven. And I've, I've, I said to you, there's a, two books that I was using uh, for the series, and one is by a guy called Randy Alcorn. And I'd just like to read a portion of, of what he says in terms of setting our minds above. And now I've lost my, give me a moment, where is my icon? I need it desperately for my photos. <laughs> there it is. Okay, so this is what he says. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's Colossians 3, Paul writing to the Colossian church. This is a, a direct command to set our hearts on heaven and to make sure we don't miss the importance of a heaven-centered life. The next verse says, Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. God is commanding us to set our hearts and our minds on heaven. To long for Christ is to long for heaven, for that is where we will be with Him. God's people are living for a better country. Uh, that's a verse out of Hebrews 11, 16. We cannot set our eyes on Christ without setting our eyes on heaven, and we cannot set our eyes on heaven without setting our eyes on Christ. Still, it is not only Christ, but the things above that we set our minds on. And then he says this. The Greek word translated set your hearts on is zeteo, which denotes man's general search or quest. The same word is used in the Gospels to describe how the Son of Man came to love and to seek what was lost. It was his quest to seek what was lost, Luke 19. It's also how the shepherd looks for the lost sheep. It's his quest to, to find the lost sheep, Matthew 18. It's how the woman searches for the lost coin, Luke 15. It's how the merchant searches for a fine pearl, Matthew 13. It's the same word. It's a diligent, active, single-minded investigation. So we can understand Paul's encouragement in Colossians 3 in the following way. Diligently, actively, single-mindedly pursue the things that are above. In a word, heaven. I love what he's, what he's saying. And then secondly, I'd just like to uh, 
kind of enlarge on a little bit. Have you ever heard this, this, this phrase, if you become too heavenly minded, you know earthly good? Have you heard, heard that phrase before? Well, he kind of looks at that phrase as well, and he says a, a, a very interesting thing that I, I'd like um, to read to you. He says this, Perhaps you're afraid of becoming so heavenly minded that you have no earthly good. Well, relax, you have nothing to worry about. On the contrary, many of us are so earthly minded that we are no, of no heavenly or earthly good either. C.S. Lewis observed this, If you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were those who thought much of the next. The apostles who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire were great men who built up the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, and all of these left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It's largely since Christians have ceased to think of heaven that they've become so unproductive in this world. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. <laughs> I love that. There's something of God's heart for us that as we pursue the things of heaven, His kingdom begins to come on earth. As we have a picture of heaven, of what it is like, what glory lies ahead of us, we start to live differently now. And I trust that really will encourage you. So what I'd like to do, do today, I said to you in, in um, the last couple of weeks that there are some pillars that we can know are certain in terms of heaven. These great, there's six of them, six great promises that the Bible teaches that we can be sure of. And I want to talk about the first great promise that the Bible talks about with you this morning. And it has to do with God. And simply it's this, in heaven, it sounds very simple, in heaven, God will be God. If we are thinking about heaven, surely the thoughts that we have about heaven must begin with God. We describe God in a, with our limited language in a number of ways. We, we use phrases like this. God sits on the throne. He sits at the center of all things. He is the bright morning star. He is the light of all lights. He is the glory of heaven. That's how we try and describe God. And um, we try and deal with God in a very limited way because our language is limited. But that leads me to a very obvious thing to say, an obvious conclusion, that heaven really is designed for and a comfortable place for people that love God. Heaven is for God lovers. God has designed heaven for those that love Him, who delight in Him, so much that they want to dwell in His presence forever and gaze on His beauty forever. That's what heaven is. That's what it's designed for. And so it's not selfish of God to be glorified. It's right and good that He is glorified. In fact, He is gracious to us to allow us to enjoy His presence and to love Him forever. Which leads me to say this. If God really is God in heaven, then heaven will be where God is fully God and everyone and everything acknowledges that He is fully God. And so I'd like to look a little just this morning with you in terms of this, of enjoying God's presence and delighting in Him. And uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but the Bible uses this phrase about face-to-face -face with God, particularly in the Old Testament. Uh, and what's fascinating to me is when we read the Scriptures, we see that the sheer might, the sheer power, and the glory of God's presence really is unendurable for people. 
But as you read the narrative of the Scripture also, that you see that there are times, there are moments, that sometimes God pulls back the curtain of the small heaven where, his, where people, for a moment, experience a glimpse of His presence. They experience a glimpse of His glory. They experience a flash of eternity, and they see Him, see Him in inverted commas. But it's also clear that the Bible says that we can't gaze into the face of God and survive. We can't experience the sheer weight of His glory. And I believe, my personal belief is, that we will know the full weight and glory of God's um, presence. Not now on earth, but we will one day see Him face to face. And it won't be just a glimpse of His glory. It won't be something that we endure. It will be our delight. It will be our greatest joy to know something of His glory. And so I'd like to just look with you quickly. There's some stories from the Bible that illustrate something of what I'm trying to say, where people have had a glimpse of the glory of God, and they've had some kind of interaction in a face-to-face way when in that moment when the curtain has been drawn back. The first is Jacob. Remember, it says of Jacob, it says he wrestled God. He wrestled the angel, and God struck him on the hip, and as a result of that, he survived the experience, but he said, I will not let you go until you bless me, and the place that, that happened was called Peniel, which means the face of God. So in some measure, Jacob experienced this incredible intimacy with God, and he even named the place the face of God. What about Moses? If you know the Old Testament, Moses, on the other hand, hid his face from God because he said he was afraid to look at God. And sometimes later in the story, it says that Moses could not look on his face, but he saw the back of the Lord. And uh, if you're finding this confusing, well, it is confusing (laughs) because our best language is restricted and limited. And we're trying to describe something of this interaction that people have with God, which is an experience of beauty and majesty, and God is unapproachable altogether, and yet He approaches us and shows something us of Himself. Uh, what we do know about Moses, in fact, is quite, is, uh, I love this uh, phrase that Scott McKnight uses. He says, Moses had divine sunburn. You remember that time when it says his face he met with God and his face so shone with the glory of God that he had to wear a veil so that people could um, look into his face. He had divine sunburn. Something of the glory of God impacted him. I love David too. So we looked at Jacob, Moses, David. The Bible says David never really saw God face to face. But if you read the Psalms, they're full of this kind of language. Remember David writing in Psalm 27, One thing I ask from the Lord... This only do I seek, to gaze on his beauty and to seek him in his temple. That was the longing of his heart, to meet in this amazing way and to see something of God face to face. If you read the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they had amazing visions of God, but they never saw him. And it's only when Jesus comes that we all are able to encounter God face to face. Because why? Because the scripture says Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Now, the, the, the run-up to Christmas. Emmanuel, God made flesh, the God of all glory coming and dwelling amongst us in the form of a baby. And John says that, doesn't he, in, in his gospel. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. I love that. That is one of my favorite verses in the whole of the Scripture. 
And so John makes this clear that no one in human history really has seen God face to face. Not Jacob, not Moses, not Isaiah, not Ezekiel. None of them saw him. They had glimpses. They had kind of the moment, there was a moment when the curtain was drawn back and they peeped through for a moment and saw something of God's glory. But no one has really seen God. And that's what he says again. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in relationship with the Father. I don't know if you remember the story of the transfiguration where the apostles, um, they see something of a foretaste of Jesus' resurrected body. Remember that? You see this, they see this glorified, transfigured body. But even that was a glimpse of what was still to come. I love what Paul says also. He says, um, he gives us this promise in 1 Corinthians 13. For now we see him, Jesus, only as a reflection in a mirror, but one day, then, we will see him face to face. I'm longing for that day, to see him face to face. So I'm trying to describe something of what it means that God is all in all, that God, God is everything in heaven, and we can be sure of that. And uh, we can see some of these things in the book of Revelation we see how the book of Revelation describes first the resurrection of Jesus and then at his return, he comes again in triumph. He triumphs completely over evil, all that is at work in this world. And then he conquers death and he hands over the kingdom to his father. That's what, what Revelation um, describes. And Paul uses a fantastic, amazing phrase to describe that end thing that happens. He says, all of this comes to pass so that God may be all in all. I love that. God may be all in all. This is the end of time. This is the end of all of history. This is the final destination for you and I. The moment of all of eternity's focus is this moment that we, you and I were made to enjoy and to see God face to face and know that God is all in all. I can put it another way. I can try and describe it like this. I can say the entire focus of heaven will be God. And so Revelation gives us a couple of hints of what that might look like. Revelation 21.5 says, God will make all things new. I love that. There's this picture of God in Revelation on the throne saying, I will make all things new. And he's talking about all of the heavens and the earth. And the new Jerusalem that's come. Behold, I make all things new. He also says of himself in Revelation 21.6, I am the Alpha, the Alpha and the Omega. And that can only mean one thing. At the end of all time, at the end of existence, God is the very center and the meaning of everything. He is the beginning. He is the end. And that's what we get to enjoy one day in eternity with him. I love this too. It says, he, uh, Revelation continues, and God makes this promise true. He says, I will be their God, and they will be my people. Beautiful promise, isn't it? That's the final, final thing that's come, coming still for all of us, that we will know God in that amazing way where He will be our God, and we will be completely be His people. And Revelation 21, 22 says, Actually, in heaven, the Lord Almighty, God the Father, and the Lamb of God, Jesus, are the temple of God. Now, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine for a first temp, uh, century Jewish person that was hearing th these things or uh, as John was prophesying these things, uh, th they must have th th found that really, really difficult. Why? Because the temple was what pointed people, pointed every worshiper to God. And so what John is saying, actually in heaven, there's no need for a temple anymore. Why? Because there's no need to point to God, because God is God. He is there. He is the all in all. He is the temple. He is the Father. And the Lamb, He is there together with the Father. And they are the temple. They are all in all. And I don't know about you, but as I try and imagine something of this, uh, what lies ahead of us, it's, 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 it's incredible. It's hard to imagine. It's hard to even describe. But what it does do is as we imagine what is to come, it shows in stark relief what our lives and concerns are with right now. What I'm trying to say is this, what is so important to us now, what is so central to our lives now, will become the least of what we are concerned about then in heaven. And what is least central to our lives now will become the most central thing one day in heaven when God is God and He is all in all. This is what I mean. Well, as we're reflecting on Brexit, as we're reflecting on all these things that have happened in the last while, I've been reflecting a little bit uh, on the uh, pound exchange rate as we've been particularly looking at going to um, Cambodia. Uh, if you let what is happening in the news shape your view of what is most important, then you will give yourself to understanding what happens in the Houses of Parliament where decisions are made, or perhaps you'll give yourself to understanding what's happening in the banking sector, where economies are financed and decisions are made behind closed doors, really, that affect and shape all of our lives and that we have really no influence over. Whether we care to admit it or not, these are very central to us now, aren't they? They affect our lives right now. Do you notice that they are not central then? Do you notice that John doesn't mention anything about economies, finances, governments? Nothing. Instead, the very center of everything at the end of all time is God Himself, is the Lamb, is worship. And the picture in Revelation is that those that are the, in the Lamb's Book of Life, they encircle God in prayer and they worship and celebrate creation and they unfinished perfect fellowship with Him. And that existence in heaven is entirely focused on Him and has nothing to do what, what, with what we are focused on now. I love that. It's a completely opposite picture of what so concerns us now is not going to be a concern for us in heaven anymore. And Augustine, the great church father, he, he captured this beautifully when he was trying to imagine what it would be like in heaven one day and wondering what it would, life in heaven would be like. And he says this, what will I do in heaven? There will be no work for my hands. What then will I do? And he answers himself, he says this, is this not activity to stand, to see love, and to praise God? Isn't that beautiful? He's saying what really is important, the central thing of heaven, is that we get to worship God as His people, as His children, forever and eternally in the most powerful way. Um, J.R. Packer, another famous writer, he says this, 
the heart of those in heaven will say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. Isn't that amazing? He's just saying the same thing in a different way. The heart of those in heaven will say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. So for me, one of the most delightful promises that we know is certain that is true about heaven is the simple realization that all of creation will be centered on God who is all in all. And flowing on from that thought, and I'm finishing with this, is that the, th the thought that all creation will be set free to worship Him, to praise Him. Just as the, the resurrected body of Jesus was seen in His glorified earthly body, in the same way, the new heavens and the new earth will be the magnified glory of all that we see right now in heaven, in the heavens and on, 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 on the earth. In other words, we will see and experience creation in heaven as it was meant to be, as it was designed to be. The new heavens and the new earth are the old heavens and the old earth, but redeemed, refreshed, glorified, restored in the form that they will have forever and ever and ever. It's part of God's plan for man was that we would exist on this earth to steward this earth. And one of the great tragedies is that as we look at how we have stewarded the earth, which was a great gift that God had for us, we have not been good stewards over the ages. Instead of protecting uh, the environment and all that has been created, we've exploited it. Instead of nurturing uh, in the environment around us, we have not sustained it. We have, we, have, we have in every way polluted it. But the picture in the Bible is the new heavens and the new earth. The ocean, the plants, and animals will be all designed as God wants them to be and intended from the very beginning. There will be pristine water that flows. The fields will produce crops without weeds. Everything will pulsate with God's life in heaven. That's the promise that lies ahead. And I put it to you that you and I, we catch glimpses of that every now and then. Sometimes in prayer, you can be just overwhelmed by God's presence and His goodness, and you can see a picture of what is to come. You catch a glimpse of it. Have you ever been uh, overwhelmed in nature sometimes? I, I have, where you're just sitting looking at the ocean or sunset, and you get this overwhelming sense of something greater, bigger, eternal that you are just catching a glimpse of through that moment. Have you ever experienced that? Well, that's God's little reminder to us of the perfect that's still to come. And it's God's little reminder to us that that feeling that we enjoy in those moments will be the ever-present feeling. It will be the fully engaged feeling that we will have with Him in heaven one day. You know, we have those moments, don't we? We have those moments that remind us of God's presence. We experience the joy of God's presence in the birth of a child. Can you, can, those of you that had children, can you remember that moment when your child was born and the delight, the kind of, well, you didn't have much, you were feeling a little bit... Um, pained but you know what I'm trying to say there's that delight where you just know something of God in, a, in, a, in a, an experience uh, you, you, you know the, the, the delight of God sometimes when there's great news of, of some family thing that happens that brings great joy but it's, it's just for a moment it's only temporary, it's fleeting it's gone, what I'm trying to say to you in heaven, 
that joy, that sense that you experience in those moments, it will never be gone. It, you, will, you will experience eternally that joy of engaging with God and every good thing that He pours out upon you, and God will be all in all in heaven. That's the first promise of what we know heaven is going to be like. It's where God is God, and all of creation, all, all of, of humanity is restored, redeemed, glorified, living perfectly in union with Him, delighting in Him, worshiping Him, enjoying fellowship with Him, and enjoying fellowship with each other. I want to encourage you <coughs> that you just dwell on these things, that you, you take a moment during your week just to ask God to give you something, of a revelation of that for yourself. A little bit more. I promise you, for all of us, if we get a little bit more of that revelation, it will affect how we live now. And it will affect our priorities. Can I just finish with a childish little song? What, is, what did we all learn in Sunday school, for those that were not to Sunday school? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. And what does it go on to say? Look in full into his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. I want to ask you this week that you would meditate on Jesus, on heaven, on what is still to come. And I promise you, something will change in how you see things now. Things that seem so important, so, you know, I had the, the joy yesterday of, sitting in the Sheldonian Theatre when we were inducted as students at Oxford. And it was, it was an amazing experience. And I, I felt that sense of connectedness to all of history, all the thousands of people that have come through that university and thought great things. It was incredibly inspiring. But you know, it's for a moment. It's gone. Then we don't remember anymore. And yet those things become so much of the focus for us, don't they? Turn your eyes on Jesus Look full in his beautiful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As we do that, we'll live well now. We'll live with eternity in our hearts. Set your minds on things above. Set your heart on what is coming. That's the way to live well now. Can I pray for you? God bless you guys. Father, I want to thank you for this amazing church. Thank you for every single person. And my prayer, Lord, is that you would give us all more of a revelation of who you are, more of a revelation of what is still lying ahead of us, what is still coming, that we would live with eternity in our hearts, that we would live knowing that the time is coming where we will enjoy you, God, all in all, that we will know you face to face, that we will experience unending joy and sense of completeness in your presence together with your Son, I thank you all of this lies still ahead. Lord, help, help it to motivate us to live well now, to not let the things of this earth become so big that we lose sight of your glory, that we lose sight of your grace, that we lose sight of all that you are still have promised us and is still to come. Lord, help us by your Spirit. I pray as we dwell on these things this week that we, you would bring greater and greater measure of revelation to all of us, that we might delight in what lies ahead, and live well now, live bravely now, live courageously now. I pray this all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.